So I'm super excited to have Matt with us today. And uh, for those of you who have attended other, uh, you know, interviews in this series, I, I try to invite CFOs. We've had lots of amazing CFOs join us, but I've found that, and I've heard from a lot of you that it's also very useful to hear the perspective of experienced board members because uh, they're an important constituent in kind of, uh, you know, working with CFOs and CFOs tend to engage with the board quite a bit. And uh, so we've had other experienced investors in the past in the series, and I'm, I'm really happy to have Matt, who's uh, been an investor for more than 20 years now. He was at Kenna Perkins for a long time. Now he's uh, at Menlo Ventures, and uh, some of the companies that you might have heard of that he's invested in are DocuSign and Carta, which uh, I know a lot of us in the startup community uh, use, and AppDynamics, which was acquired by Cisco, and of course, Airbase. I have the pleasure of working with Matt uh, uh, you know, regularly, and uh, I think uh, you'll all enjoy uh, this conversation. So Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Sure, great to be here. Awesome. So let's kind of uh, uh, you know, step back a bit. I know you've been doing this for more than 20 years. You've been a VC for more than 20 years, and but you did start your career at Sun Microsystems and you were an operator, right? Product management and you have a technical background. Uh, what got you into investing? Like why VC? Sure. Uh, so uh, I went to Stanford Business School. That was kind of my gateway to come out West. I was a Boston East Coast person and and really wanted to come out and get in the tech community. And when, when I arrived at Stanford, I had no idea what uh, venture capital was. And uh, at Stanford, everyone's like, it's this buzzy thing up on this road called Sand Hill. And I didn't even know where Sand Hill was, but it always had this kind of mythical uh, uh, kind of halo around it. And, um, you know, this, when I graduated, it was just kind of the birth of the internet. Netscape was just kind of launching Sun Microsystems, a company that doesn't even exist anymore, was like the the backbone of the internet and a lot of interesting things going on. So I joined Sun to get a broad kind of technical um, exposure to a variety of different sectors. I didn't know at that point in time exactly where I wanted to go. So they had everything from an OS to a semiconductor to systems to uh, security software, you name it. Doesn't happen that much anymore, but <clears throat> that's who they were. Um, and then after a couple of years there, there was a startup with some Sun folks um, that I that I joined, and that was a pretty quick ride to an acquisition by by Intel, and and so I kind of had that big company, that startup experience, and had seen a lot of different areas of technology. And again, there was kind of a boom time in the valley, and in '99, and and so I was thinking about venture capital. As so happens, uh, John Doerr, kind of the legendary partner from Kleiner Perkins, was looking for an associate, and two of my business school classmates said, "Hey, you ought to talk to Matt." So just everything kind of synced up perfectly. Uh, the acquisition was just happening and I got the call and uh, thought it would be a great way to learn the business and get explore, exposed to a lot more and learn about this mythical thing called uh, venture capital. So I arrived. Got it. And look, uh, uh, John Doe made that you know hugely famous investment in uh, Google uh, with Mike Moretz and and you were in that boardroom from the moment Kleiner Perkins made that investment all the way to the IPO. And uh, you know, tell us about that experience. Obviously, uh, you know, Google has turned out to be uh, an incredible uh, business. And and you know, I have some specific questions about sure. you know, that experience, but I'd love to hear what being in that boardroom during those early years was like. Yeah, I mean, that was super fortuitous early in my career to get exposure to a company like that. 
And then in some ways it, uh, it can kind of like mess you up because you're like, well, how can you ever kind of find a company like that? But I think it's the journey that, to get there that's super interesting because as, as you and uh, all entrepreneurs know, things are often much harder on the inside than they look um, from the outside. So yeah, it was about, I think about six or eight weeks after um, Kleiner Perkins had invested in Google uh, that John said, hey, I want you to shadow me on a couple of boards. And so I got to go to everyone and just see all the different things they went through as their business model evolved and as how they thought about the business and the opportunity, kind of classic story of starting with a really technical foundation and some great technology and then try to figure out how best to map it to the market. But people don't remember that so well in, in hindsight. Uh, and, you know, was it all up and right uh, during those years, at, even at Google, a company like Google? Yeah, I mean, the the up and to the right was probably like the traffic was always up and to the right. I guess revenue was kind of always up and to the right. But for a long time, Larry and Sergey didn't care about revenue at all. You know, the, the biggest kind of, you know, fundamental point in the company was really trying to figure out what the business model would be. Um, you know, Larry and Sergey didn't like advertising, like maybe a lot of entrepreneurs wouldn't. There's like, hey, people, we want people to pay for our technology, not do advertising. But there was kind of this existential moment where, you know, Google wanted to sell their, 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 their technology as an API, as a dip and get paid on usage and consumption. Obviously a model that's become very popular today with companies like Twilio, uh, but not so popular back then and not so scalable. Um, but search was really popular on a bunch of other people's websites. And then along came AOL and they started doing guarantees where instead of selling you the search, we're going to buy that piece of real estate and <clears throat> Google was going to get displaced in a lot of places. And so that put that business model in jeopardy. And then along came this very smart team and said, hey, look, our technology is so much better. We're going to be able to monetize that real estate better than anybody. So we're going to outbid them. And it was something crazy because I don't remember, I think we had like $25 million on the balance sheet and they guaranteed $60 million. So there's this whole board conversation around if we're wrong, like this could kind of sink the company. But you know, the technology was so good. Google's team was so good. And Larry and Sergey were so smart that, you know, they really figured out with probably 90x percent probability, high 90s, that this was going to work. And sure enough, the numbers were even better than that. So that was kind of the, the moment. But like, you know, it kind of feels like just from the outside, it was a natural progression. But in the war room, there was a few big moments around uh, where things had. So great to learn that. And, and hindsight is always interesting, right? Looking back now, you know, a lot of the very successful companies, things seem to be predestined and all of that. But was it clear at that stage in the very early years that Google would become, you know, the business it is today? I mean, it was clear that it was special. Um, they could hire anybody they wanted to. The level of talent in that company was, you know, second, second to none. Um, and no one ever left, right? Like all of us these days in the Valley, like churn is so high and they, 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 they had the best talent and no one ever left and they just had such a, a big vision. So, you know, it wasn't clear because like the business model wasn't that it wasn't clear, but what was clear is this was a special company and they just had kind of a better sense of kind of uh, planning, figuring things out, dreaming the dream, uh, and and just being bold that was always there. And so you knew something great was going to happen. It was just wasn't, uh, couldn't be precise about it at that time. Got it. And before I jump into kind of, you know, working with uh, CFOs, last question about 
uh, you know, your journey. And, and that's over the course of your career, you've invested across a lot of sectors, right? Like ad tech and networking and, you know, uh, a bunch of uh, sectors like that. But these days you're pretty heavily focused on workflow driven SaaS and, and, and how have you thought about what's interesting? Like, where the opportunities are, what sectors and themes to focus on, how have you approached that over the course of your investing career? Yeah, I mean, the the great thing about being a venture capitalist is, you know, part of your job is trying to figure out like where where you think the most interesting set of trends are happening and where you think you can be your best. Um, you know, you, you want to be right about the sectors you're in because no matter how good you're in, if the sector is not good, you're probably not going to be that successful as an investor. And then, you know, you always have to ask yourself the why you story. So I always ask myself for this particular opportunity, why Menlo, why Matt? What do we bring to the table that's really compelling to this, um, this entrepreneur? So hey, probably the transition for me was um, around the time that I ran something called the iFund at uh, Kleiner Perskins. So it was a $200 million collaboration fund with Apple, you know, RLP's capital, but kind of strategically aligned with Apple where they would send us a lot of, you know, deal flow and connect us into their, uh, developer ecosystem and things like that. So the reality is, you know, a couple of years into that, a couple of three years into that, mobile became like a horizontal. It wasn't like a thing anymore. Certainly there's some things like gaming that it stayed mobile, but for the most part, it was like, hey, if you're a, a company, a software company, you're probably going to have mobile as one vector of how you reach your, your, your audience. So uh, so it was really, they were all software companies. Some of them were evolving to become B2B, even though they didn't start that way. And I think SaaS was really picking up steam as a business model. And so for me, it was really kind of that, like feeling like the, the mobile opportunity in B2B was really underserved and that a lot of these companies, um, you know, were at the end of the day, SaaS-like companies and that probably B2B was a better fit for me in terms of my thinking. I love B2B businesses trying to predict, predict the uh, behavior of consumers in a deterministic way is probably not my uh, my power alley. I'm not sure it's anybody's, but uh, but uh, anyway, I, I love B2B businesses. So that's kind of where I ended up in that transition to, to B2B as the market was really taken off, as you mentioned, with companies like DocuSign, which is like a perfect example of what happens when mobile meets SaaS. And, you know, the staying power of a lot of these businesses has been fascinating, right? Like just the, you know, the markets have turned out to be a lot larger and like a lot, so many of these B2B SaaS businesses just continue to grow and grow and grow. And, and you know, that would be a much longer conversation. And clearly you picked, uh, you know, some of the right companies and, and the right market to play in. So let's just focus a little bit to, you know, your experience working with CFOs. Sure. Uh, clearly you've been on lots of boards, right? And, and worked with lots of CFOs. Um, you know, help recruit lots of CFOs into companies. And, uh, you know, let's start with, you know, the common patterns that you've seen in, when you think about maybe the top three or four really high quality CFOs uh, that, you know, come to your mind over the course of the 20 years that you've been doing this as an investor, what are some of those common patterns you've seen that make them stand apart? Yeah, I mean, the the, the first thing that stands out is really a partner to the CEO. Um uh, not not quite the, the right-hand person because you don't want to imply that the CFO is more important than the rest of the executive team, but there's just a lot of things that the 
CEO and CEO and CFO need to collaborate on. It's like, hey, I, I, you know, I've set the plan. Here's the vision. Here's all the things that we need to do. And CFO, I kind of need to trust that you're going to make sure that all the trains run on time. The business is instrumented properly. We know what's going on. We're spending resources the right way. We're kind of, you know, uh, both uh, giving those opportunities and, and policing that. So I really say serving in, in that kind of a role. Um, heavy on on planning. Um, you know, what has stood out to me is those CFOs who really deeply understand the business well enough to 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 create a, a, a deep plan that is not just kind of rolling up things from business unit leaders, but their understanding of the business model, how to optimize it. Uh, thirdly, I'd probably say, a, uh, you know, a CFO who 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 knows how to measure the business, very metric centric leading indicators. So they're there aren't surprises and things like that. And then another one, and these aren't necessarily in enforced rank order, but another super important one is how do they collaborate with the rest of the, the business leaders? Um, you know, a CFO is kind of like, I'm, I'm Dr. No is probably not the, the most um, effective. And yet you can't be uh, just the person who rolls up information. You've got to get deep into those business units, partner with them, understand how to help them think about the efficiency of their business and drive that in you know every level of the company. Uh, and you, you, you touched on the partnership with the CEO, right? And in the good CEO, CFO partnerships that you've seen, how do they typically split up those uh, responsibilities and um, what does a good partnership look like? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a historical view was the uh, CFO owns the balance sheet and the CEO owns the income statement. But I, I think that's a bit old school. And really, <clears throat> you want a CFO who deeply understands the, the the business and can, again, it's kind of the things I said before, where, you know, the CFO needs to help the, C, the CEO optimize the income statement. So we've got a certain amount of resources. We can apply them in a lot of different ways. Do we know how we're spending them? Do we know whether that's efficient? Should we do more of this, more of that? And how is the CFO into the details with all the different operational functional heads to, to make everybody smarter about those kind of trade-offs and, and, and how the business should think about those trade-offs and where the capital should be spent? So that's what I really enjoy in, in, in a CFO and where they impress you on the upside is those who deeply understand the business and are able to get in there and help those other business unit leaders and the whole company be more effective with the resources we have. And so a lot of folks in the audience, they are at different stages of growth in their career. And you know some may be up for a VP of finance role, some may be already on the path to a CFO role. When you are maybe advising uh, the founders and the CEOs that you are partnering with, uh, how do you think about that, right? So what, in your opinion, is the difference between a VP of finance versus a CFO? And at what stage of maturity of a company would you recommend that, hey, you probably need a CFO and not just a VP of finance? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I think... Um... CFO feels more strategic. Um, VP of finance feels more proficient, proficient at the numbers. Uh, but a CFO is really someone more whose uh, advice and opinion is sought out. They're they're an independent voice. They're uh, they're they're. Um, their presence, their impact is known more than like, hey, I've, I've got a good handle on the numbers. Um, so that that's probably the easiest way to. To, to distinguish it in terms of timing of a CFO, I you know generally I think the sooner 
the better. I mean, I, I know companies that have hired a CFO when they're, you know, earlier than 5 million of ARR. And I know some companies that haven't hired one until they're close to 50. So it's all over the map, but I, but I, I, I think you'll struggle to find a company that's, oh, we hired a CFO too early. A CFO can really um, be helpful and also help, helpful on offloading it, uh, things for a CFO, I mean, for a CEO. A CFO at times can run around and do a bunch of different things. They can run HR for a while. They can handle all the well, leases, just a bunch of different things in the company. I think if you have a versatile CFO, they're kind of a, a, a very helpful business leader to help kind of uh, run down a lot of things that otherwise, you know, a CFO might, a CEO might have to do um, to do themselves. But I think the main thing is really just kind of preparing a company for growth and having that strategic, thoughtful finance person at your side earlier in the company is a win. Got it. That's awesome. So, you know, as a board member, right, if you had to pick just one thing that a CFO can never delegate and and uh, is the most important responsibility. What would that be from your perspective? Yeah, I think um, owning the leading indicators of the business because the one thing that you don't ever want from a CFO is is a surprise. Like that's unacceptable. So a CFO to me. The one thing is you can't just say, oh, well, everybody had their metrics. And I just kind of rolled them up and, and here's what they said and they were wrong. They have to take ownership. They have to understand them well enough to say, well, that makes sense or not. We're measuring the right things. Um, I'm looking at them enough to know whether something is going to be on or off. So it's that. That's the main thing to me. Got it. And, you know, you've done this long enough to probably have seen situations where it didn't work out, right? And you know, what are the typical failure modes? And especially, you know, a lot of the times if you're a first-time founder, first-time CEO, especially if you come from a technical background, product engineering background, you don't really know and understand the job of the CFO. It, it takes some experience, even for CEOs and founders to understand what exactly does the CFO do and, and what is good, what is, you know, not that good and all of that, right? And, but as somebody who is the more experienced, maybe voice uh, at the uh, level of the board, uh, have you ever kind of uh, had to pull a founder aside and say, you know what, this is probably not working out. But I guess the summary of the question is, what are the typical failure modes uh, in CFOs that have, have ever made you, you know, feel that? Yeah, I mean, high level, it's probably been, you know, feeling way too tactical versus strategic. And you're like, look, given where we're going, we're going to outgrow this person and we need somebody who's a bigger thinker and a better partner to this to the CEO. We need somebody who's a better leader and can build out a full finance team. Um, you know, things like that. But you know, there's a couple of other things. I mean, certainly it'd be the opposite of what I said before. If somebody um, doesn't really have a sense of the the leading indicators, the metrics, you, you know, you, you get surprised. Like that's uh, you know that 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 would certainly be one. I think there's another one where some. Some CFOs come in and be like, oh, well, my job is, let's go back to the balance sheet. It's like, my job is to make sure the balance sheet is all set. So I'm going to spend a bunch of time uh, just talking to all these investors and raising capital. And that's important. But like, look, the reality is if we have a great company and a great founder, uh, capital is somewhat gonna, going to take care of itself. And the CFO can help with the data room and help with the process and everything. But I find that some CFOs want to do the kind of fun sexier stuff instead of the deep operational stuff. And then that can be a failure mode too. Got it. And uh, I'm going to come back and we're going to do a whole QA, Q&A section, but 
some people are already uh, sending in questions and I will ask one here because I think it's relevant. Mike uh, has that question about, you talked about you know, CFOs really owning leading indicators, right? And uh, I, you know, what are those leading indicators? I guess it depends on the business model and and what the business is actually doing. But um, you know, what is your general uh, kind of feedback on leading indicators that CFOs should keep a very close eye on? Yeah, I mean, there a lot of them are are like you said, it depends on the business model, but they're they're deeper in the business. So things that you know that I care about, let's say on the on the revenue front is like, um, hey, how how is pipeline being generated? Are we keeping up with pipeline? Because sales, what we're actually closing is a lagging indicator, right? It closed. But the question is like, hey, we've created a model and let's say making this up that we need 4X coverage at the end of, at the beginning of every quarter if we're gonna make the number. Well, okay, so are we hitting that number? And if not, well, why? And then you kind of get, you get into the why is the really interesting thing because, oh, well, maybe, um, you know, we didn't have enough SDR, so we didn't have enough pipeline capacity. Maybe we weren't doing enablement right, but you kind of, it helps you unpack things that may be going on in the business need to be fixed before it, um, it gets worse. You know, sales reps ramping, um, you know, success of marketing campaigns, are they leading into SQLs and things like that? Again, all these things that start to show like there's, there's momentum, but it's not just that. I mean, there's also leading indicators in product and engineering. I mean, are we, you know, are we, uh, are we getting the yield out of our engineering team that, that, that we expected? We've got all these engineers. So what, what's the output? Like, what's our, where we're creating all this product, what's the goal? Like, is it just to get more product out or, hey, we're releasing this product and we're expecting when they get this out, there's going to be a 15% attach rate. Okay. Well, if that's why we spent all that money, let's make sure that you know, we're, we're driving towards those kind of things happening. That's a little bit, I can't really say that's necessarily as much of a leading one, but it's certainly an important one to kind of have a closed loop in the whole system around why resources are being spent the way they are. Got it. And Casey made an interesting comment about, hey, trench digging is required to lay the pipeline, which is yeah. Uh, yeah, nice to talk about it. And uh, so let's also you know, quickly talk about, you know, CFOs and COOs, you know, I've, I've had some conversations about how some people make the shift, uh, if, if that's what, you know, they're looking for and, uh, but uh, others don't really get that opportunity. Have you seen that shift happen often uh, over the course of your board roles where CFOs become COOs and were, have you kind of uh, uh, blessed that transition and gained confidence and uh, maybe you should initially talk about the difference between those two roles uh, yeah. and, and also when does it make sense for a CFO to actually transition into that COO? Sure. So COO is one of the more ambiguous terms in, in, the, in, in the venture landscape in terms of what, what that means and what a COO does. Um, you know, there've been many examples like at Dropbox and, you know, thing, things like that. Um, but oftentimes it means um, uh, probably the most common definition is like the CEO, uh, founder CEO wants to run product and engineering and then a COO runs everything else. I think you find a lot of times where COO is really running all things go to market. So kind of a CRO plus plus. And that's probably, you know, maybe even the most popular definition these days. So how a, how a CFO fits into that is, is, is you know, kind of, imperfect on those two aspects. I think where a, CEO, a CFO can be a C, 
OO is where it's really more like the all the the back office, you know, which which is large, right? You've got you've got uh, you've got legal, you've got HR, you've got finance, you've got compliance. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff there. So you know, some sometimes that's been called like a, a CAO. So like our CFO at AppDynamics uh, had been a CAO, so Chief Administrative Officer before um, with his with his um, CFO background. So anyway, my point is it can happen, but it really is very situationally specific around where that founder, where that CEO, where that team needs the most help and what the scope of responsibility is. I guess I'm just saying like with a pure CFO background, it's not obvious why the CFO should, for example, be managing go to market. Now they've they've worked with those teams and so forth, but they've never managed them, probably never carried a bag. They've never lived the function. So it makes it a little bit harder. So I think it probably depends on, you know, what the company's business model is and 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 I'm not selling um, any CFO out there short at all because oftentimes they are the smartest people about the business, the most operational, the most insightful, and they know um, what needs to be done. So I think that that's how someone can kind of grow into that role is they just become so trusted as a right-hand person. And a lot of CFOs, frankly, can be great, great leaders. And so I think that's how it can evolve um, in that path as well, down that path. Awesome. So let's transition a little bit to the CFO recruiting process and the role that an investor and sure. board plays in that, right? So um, what are you evaluating in a CFO candidate when you inter interview them as a board member, right? So when you think about uh, uh, other than the core technical skills, which hopefully by the time it comes to you as a board member, you're not kind of testing technical skills and things like that. And that's happened earlier in the process. Um, but what are you uh, focusing on when you're interviewing CFO candidates? Yeah, sure. I I clearly want to know what the CFO thinks is the most important thing in their role. Um, so get them talking about that. And are they focused on the right things? Again, if they tell me that they're going to come in and help Tejo raise $100 million, I'm like, ah, that's probably not our highest order bid or pain point, right? It's more like, look, um, I'm highly operational this is what I focus on. Uh, what I really like to hear is how do they partner uh, with the teams, with the business units, uh, the operating functions? How do they, what, what metrics do they care about? I mean, I like that to just come out. I don't like to have to ask, what metrics do you care about? As they're describing what they do well in the role, I want to hear that from them. And the more I have to probe, the more, you know, kind of worried I get. Um, I want them to kind of put out that out there in the front. Um, and then really like, having an independent point of view. It's super important that a CFO recognizes, obviously they work for the, for the CEO, but they need to have an independent voice. They need to be able to stand up both internally to every executive and say, I disagree with that, you know, should do things differently, but also be a bit of an independent voice to the, to the board as well in, in, in that kind of open board session uh, and kind of register any, any concerns. I think it's really important that the person has that level of gravitas, if you will. And also, you know, the, the questions that you ask them in, in that process. So you covered that a little bit, but are there specific tactical things and questions you like to ask uh, candidates to gain confidence that, okay, they're thinking about some of these operational areas and partnership and things like that, uh, um, you know, in the right way? Yeah, I mean, I get very specific with them on, tell me how you instrument the business. Tell me what 
metrics you care about. Um, tell me like what what do you how how have you worked with a couple of these functions? Like tell me what that looks like uh, on an average week. Um, Tell me how you deal with if you disagree with someone, something, uh, both of the CEO or one of your peers. What do you do about it? How do you manage that? And and uh, you know, I I think there's important questions there in terms of how the person thinks about collaboration and really helps. They have to be influential because again, as a CFO, you can't be like Doctor No. I control the purse strings. So if I say no, but it's more like how are they influential with people and trusted? How do they get the people to change their behavior because they're trusted in their, their point of view? And how adaptable are they to kind of saying, oh, I didn't fully understand that, or I get that we're gonna take some risks that could cost some money, but these risks are worth it given where we're trying to go. So those are some examples of what I try to probe, both their kind of their flexibility, their nimbleness, as well as um, how they um, you know, take on things at a level of depth in the org. Yeah, and another thing that a lot of folks coming up the ranks uh, wonder about is, hey, how do you get that first CFO role? Because sometimes you can get stuck in this situation where uh, people don't want to take the risk on that uh, first time CFO. And how do you think about that when you are kind of uh, helping the companies you invest in recruit CFOs? What have you learned about first time CFO candidates sure. will have done it before, right? I think the easiest one is like be the number two in a company that you know, was really successful. So people are going to look and say, okay, you were part of that. You were in the number two, but you learned all the lessons along the way. Hopefully you had a great CFO mentor, boss, uh, a strong CEO to, to work with. And so it's kind of, you know, understanding what they went through and what they learned. And are they really ready to kind of now um, be the number one person through those roles? You know, that's the easiest. I think that sometimes, you know, that 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 would be the perfect scenario if all the stars lined up. Um, I think there's other scenarios where you just feel like, look, the, the person was a earlier stage. It was a super competent VP of finance. They they, you know, at some point they decided the company was big enough that they needed to hire a CFO. And that makes sense. But you saw that person take that company from five to twenty five or whatever. And you're like, you know what? They learned a lot this time around. You know they're 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 kind of ready. So I, I think like just having being able to look at some some examples of where you were highly impactful in an, in a growth organization, um, and then being able to really you know defend the kind of impact you had. Like how did you think about these issues? How did you build out the org? It's totally okay if you know a CFO was brought in over you, but there was some period of time where you had a really significant impact that you can point to. Got it. And on the related note, there's an interesting question about, you know, what do you recommend CFOs should uh, ask board members when they are interviewing for those roles? And what's your recommendation for CFOs in terms of their ability to learn about the business and all of that? Like, what have the yeah. uh, impressive CFOs done with you in, in those situations? Yeah, I mean, it's probably like... I think a lot of them like to ask this open-ended question, like, you know, what are you looking for most in a CFO? And then those open-ended questions are always good just to kind of start having a dialogue and you kind of um, feel each other out a little bit. But I think that's a good one. Like, what do you, what do you think's needed here? And so you say like, here's my sense. I've spent some time with the team and here's where I think they need the most impact right now. But, but, but what do you think? And then once that person like myself says, well, here's the way I see it. Here's what I think it, uh, we need. Then it's a great time 
to come in as the candidate and say, okay, well, now let me tell you, if that's the case, now let me tell you why I think that I'm the right person for that. I'm, I'm good at that. Or, um, you know, or, or uh, yeah, I think I can do part of that. Here's how I would build out the team to be awesome against those set of requirements. Got it. Got it. All right. Awesome. So now in terms of the day-to-day -day working, the recruitment has happened, there's a CFO on board, you're working with them uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. What, what are you just looking for? Uh, you know, fall from them as a board member, right? Like what inspires confidence uh, in the day-to-day -day operations um, as a board member in the CFO? Yeah. Um, I think like everything just feels a little bit better, better planned. Things feel tighter. Um, there's the conversation is at a different level of depth and confidence. Like before a CFO, a lot of I'm not sure, don't know, we're still figuring that out. Post CFO, uh, here's what we're doing, here's how we're measuring it, here's how this is working, here's what's not. Um, so it's kind of like that that level of clarity, transparency, that independent point of view, that voice um, is is heard a lot more. Um, so yeah, I mean that's I think post hiring the CFO, it it feels like your confidence level in the trains running on time is materially different. Just the command of the business is different. Got it. And so let's talk about the flip side. What makes uh, you as a board member lose confidence uh, in a CFO? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the obvious one is kind of like, um, wait, we hired the CFO and every time a off script question gets asked, they're like, um, I'm not sure. Let me uh, let me get back to you. I'm going to have to talk to a member of my team on that. You want somebody who feels very deep in the detail and very conversant about it. And because otherwise, why would you, why do you have the trust and confidence that that this is all really coming together the right way? If they're not like you know, if it's not kind of like top of mind or right there. I mean, certainly there'll be times where there's some specific detail, but directionally. Like, hey, here's how we're thinking about it. I'll tell you that, like, I can get you the exact number, but like, you want people who display that that level of confidence that they've got command in the depths of the numbers and things like that. Um, and then, you know, probably the other thing again, it's probably the the flip side of other things we've talked about. It's like the CFO suddenly feels like kind of a, a weak voice in the room. They kind of like disappear a little bit. What happened to that independent point of view that we were looking for? What happened to that person who was you know, going to um, be a significant member of the executive team. And, and now they suddenly feel kind of meek and hidden behind the CFO and a CEO and kind of maybe, um, yeah, that, that's, that's not a great scenario. And, and you feel that at times. And that's when you're kind of talk to the CEO and say, hey, really want the CFO to feel more empowered, more okay with taking some risk and conversing about things. All right. Also, and, and speaking of that uh, you know confidence and voice uh we've seen a lot of uh, cases of failed ipos bad governance and you know horror stories around that outright fraud in cases and what do you think a cfo's role uh is in avoiding that preventing that and and just good corporate governance right and how what expectations do you have as an investor board member um you know from the cfo in, in that area uh, they should be the guardian of, of truth, right? Like you, 
you never want to see a CFO who's hand wavy. You want the CFO to feel like this person is really the, the conscience of the company and they will always be truthful. They will always be explicit, call it as it is. Um, you know, if you're talking about a quarter, sometimes a salesperson can be like, hey, well, it's kind of like this, kind of like that CFO, you want to be a little bit more like absolute. I mean, obviously, especially when it comes to things like compliance, uh, the behavior of the company, the way we treat people both internally and externally, things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, governance is a really big deal these days. And, you know, certainly for companies like Airbase, who are the financial backbone uh, for a lot of companies, like it's super important. And um, I know it matters a lot to you. And, and so it should to all CFOs. Awesome. Now, this, this has been awesome. I'm going to jump into questions. There are a bunch of them uh, already. Uh, if you have other questions, please put them. There's a Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window. Uh, please put in the question there. But before I jump into questions, very quickly, uh, you know, if you're not already familiar with Airbase and what we do as a company, we bring every non-payroll dollar that businesses spend into one platform, right? So typically, you have to have a corporate card system, an expense reimbursement system like bill.com, sorry, yeah, like Expensify, a bill payment system like bill.com, and all of these different systems have to kind of be cobbled together to solve the larger problem of how spend management happens, right? And so we just say, you know what, you don't need so many systems, one platform, every dollar and workflow related to how that money is spent happens in one place. And and uh, so if you think, you know, that is interesting uh, and you want to learn more, a lot is going to pop up a quick yes, no question. Let us know. And we'd love to talk to you about potentially helping you streamline and bring all of those different elements from different silos into a single platform, right? Awesome. So, uh, Matt, let's jump into the uh, audience questions. Uh, here, here's an interesting one. Thomas asks, hey, if a CFO has personally invested in a business, is that a good idea? Does that impact independence? Would you recommend that? Uh, I assume the question means like if CFO invests in their, their own business. Exactly. In the business in a company they join. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you join a company, you're going to be a shareholder anyway, whether it's, you know, your own personal capital or the stock options you get, uh, likely both because you'll exercise your options at some point. So no, I don't, I, that, that's not a, I don't think that's a yeah, yellow or red flag of any kind. I think, you know, in general, if an executive wants to invest in the company, uh, it's a good thing. We love the, the higher the commitment, the better, uh, and the more skin in the game, the better as long as the person doesn't do it to the point where they're like, oh no, I can't have this company fail because I'll go bankrupt. So that's not, that's not good. We don't want undue financial pressure, but uh, uh, doubling down and being all in is always a good thing in my mind. Awesome. And so Chris has a question about fundraising. I'm going to editorialize a little bit before I jump to his question. This is a fairly crazy market. Like I've, I've, I've told a bunch of investors that I, I, who reach out to me and I speak with that. I, don't, I do not envy uh, you know, your job in the current environment. It's super competitive, fast moving, and you know, very little time to make decisions, all that kind of stuff. But uh, specifically, when you have, as a CFO, when you're analyzing a capital raise and you have to decide between you know, taking equity dollars uh, versus debt financing, how do you think about that choice, especially when equity is, is uh, relatively cheaper right now and, and because of the current environment? Uh, in, in the companies that you're on, in the boards that you're on that are thinking about equity versus debt, what's the trade-off and how do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, the kind of golden rule in ventures, you don't love um, debt being used for, for operations, right? So if it's like financing some equipment or financing accounts receivable, things like that, the kind of general working capital, but to kind of like say, hey, like uh, equity is pretty cheap, but debt's near free, like that, that's, that's a mistake. I mean, you know, that, that sounds good when everything goes perfectly, um, but can be a huge trap and maybe death if, uh, if things don't. So get the best equity financing you can from an investor that you wanna work with and you believe can be really helpful to you in building the business as an advisor or partner, all those things and use debt to kind of complement that. Um, so debt, and by the way, like there's some venture investors who are like, oh, don't take debt at all. And I'm not in that camp. I really do believe that debt can be um, used effectively for working capital, as well as like, I often view it as an insurance policy. So, you know, not necessarily at the, at the stage that like Airbase is at, but earlier on, sometimes there's just things that take a little bit longer, you know, a, a product slipped out a couple of quarters, didn't quite get that flywheel spinning and the equity capital starts to get tight and you might have to go to market uh, when things don't look so good and getting another six, nine months of runway uh, at that stage early on can, can really be the difference between a great financing and a, and a bad one. So I'm okay with it under those circumstances in a relatively limited amount. All right. And then Scott has an interesting question about in situations where the CFOs have big concerns and they're not really aligned with the CEO, what's the best way for the CFO to raise that concern with the board of directors? It's a delicate situation, right? And so what's your recommendation um, and how CFOs should handle that? It is like, you know, the, the odd thing would be like, uh, hey, um, uh, CFO wants to talk to you. CEO doesn't know that that's going on. That That's just like, that's kind of a breach of trust on all. I mean, unless it's like catastrophic, then, you know, the CFO needs to do do the right thing. But generally speaking, you hope that the CFO, CEO, the culture of the organization is, is open. There are some CEOs who feel very threatened about executives having one-on-one -on -one conversations with their, with their board um, or who want to speak with one voice in the boardroom. And, and, and that's not really great for, for anybody, frankly. So I think it's just, you know, it's, it's you know, you, as a team, you talk about these things and it's okay to err that there's some difference of opinions. Like, hey, look, we're going to go spend the following on this. As the CFO, I'm not sure I can, I, I really believe that that's going to be a great return. Um, the CEO and the head of marketing believe we should spend that. And so, you know, we're going to do it and I'm going to monitor it and keep everybody honest that that was a good use of capital or we're going to rein it back in or not do it again. But yeah, if that's the way someone feels, they shouldn't make it seem like, oh, yeah, this is the plan that I'm bought into and everything's okay. And we're all going for it. I think it's important to be able to have that voice of dissension. And what comes out of that is like, look, we all understand the risk. We're moving forward, but we know that there's that risk and we should focus on that and align on that. And Adam had a you know similar question about disagreement and how to handle that. And uh, But in general, do you recommend that CFOs build one-on-one -on -one relationships with board members and have that independent relationship? Like you said, some CEOs, you know, I, I tend to disagree with that notion. I think all executives in the company should you know, feel free to interact with the board and, and CEOs should not feel threatened uh, you know, when that happens. But you know, for a CFO, they're in a slightly special 
place when it comes to board relationships because boards tend to look to them as being you know for better or worse an adult in the room and you know that uh, absolute arbiter of truth uh, and and boards are looking to CFOs to play that uh, play that role and so do you recommend that you know they build one on one relationships and make the effort or just engage during board meetings and 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 uh, that's about it like what kind of relationship do yeah. you like have with the CFOs of your portfolio companies yeah well i mean for example i wouldn't want like uh hey let me do a once a quarter check in or once a month check in with the CFO that that doesn't feel necessarily value add to either of us unless there's a certain kind of CEO who doesn't you know who 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 knows i want to dig into some metrics and doesn't want to spend time on that or or whatever but i have to let it happen a little bit more organically like hey um you know, I can tell you were asking some questions in the board meeting the other day that didn't get fully answered. You know, would love to hop on the phone with you for 15 minutes and talk about that and just make sure I'm really understanding what you're concerned about or what else I can do. Like that is 100%, you know, useful and okay and, and all of that. I'm just saying, I don't think there's a reason to make up a, a, a relationship for the sake of it. It's like, let it, let it kind of happen organically where pick your spots where it makes sense. Um, you know, another one, Hey, we are actually raising capital. Um, would love to connect with somebody on your team. This is the CFO speaking um, to kind of understand what's a world-class data room. Um, tell me, can I work with somebody on your team or you to kind of figure out like, how do we kind of make that right? Or maybe just, you know, I know you've talked to COX about some investors. We'd love to hear your perspective about who might be best for us here and what the expectations would be to make sure that we're ready. These are just a number of examples that could come up. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, Thomas has a question about communicating bad news. He, he talks specifically about sales projections and missing and things like that. But I'll broaden it a little bit to say, you know, communicating bad news to, uh, you know, uh, the board and investors. What's the right way to do it? What's the you know, wrong way to do it? Um, well, I mean, certainly the the CEO should be the, the tip of the spear on that, right? Um, if that's not happening, then the CFO should really push the, the CEO to do that. Uh, you know, it depends on like what the cadences of the board too. Like some boards in many meet once a quarter and then you'll have a mid-quarter check-in. And then at the end of the quarter, there'll be, you know, within a few days of end of quarter, there'll be a narrative that comes out oftentimes from the CFO, oftentimes from the CEO, like, hey, here's a little recap on the quarter. So that's really an opportunity for, a CFO certainly to be part of that communication and maybe even even lead that um, around the news and just you know again you know the, uh, the the CFO needs to be the source of truth so make sure that your role is always to make sure that things are truthful there's no reason to I mean anybody who's been in this business long enough as a, as a venture capitalist realizes ups and downs realizes that a lot of companies aren't going to work out realizes that sometimes it's going to take a lot longer than anybody wants for the company to succeed. So you, you did not bring on the right investor if you're afraid to tell them what's really going on. Got it. Melody has a question about, um, you know, the dynamic between <clears throat> CEOs and other executives and, um, you know, any advice or tips on how to build those relationships, conflict, uh, uh, you know, resolution. Have, have you had to ever, hopefully not, but have you had to ever step in as a board member to help with, with uh, some of those dynamics inside of leadership teams? 
I wouldn't say I've ever had to step in and say, like, specifically, I'm going to get involved in resolving conflict between like CFO and, and different team members, but you see it and you feel it. And so like, you're like, all right, that is not going to work. That's not going to be productive. And so it's more like you can, sometimes you feel that in a board meeting, you just kind of call it out right there. Like, look, I get the sense here that you two are kind of talking past each other or you're not working together to get to the right answer. We are all on the same team. It's your job to work together to, to do this. You can't be like, the CFO's bothering me, won't let me spend money or, or CFO, this person's not listening to me. Like that, that's not gonna fly for anybody. Obviously the CEO is gonna see that and do something about it anyway, but sometimes it just kind of bubbles up and becomes more acute in a board meeting. And that's where you know a board member would kind of step in and just push everybody that, you know, we're not going to be able to do this well unless we're collaborating well. And, and now look, sometimes you might just have a CFO who's got a, I, I mean, look, you, you, everybody has different personalities and sometimes people uh, don't get along as well as you'd like them to. Just like sometimes sales blames marketing, marketing blames sales, you know, sales blames engineering. There's all kinds of these, <laughs> these things. But the reality is the CFO has to be influential and impact, impactful across the organization. So even if all those other personalities are difficult, if the CFO can't find a way to be influential with them, then frankly, they're not going to work out. And that's the challenge as a CFO. You've got to find a way to deal with the nuances of all those personalities, be accepted, be effective, and you know, use your CEO to help you though. Don't, you know, uh, the CFO, CEO, CFO needs to feel like they've got the air cover of the CEO. And you know, Nolan has a question about fractional CFOs. Um, by the time you invest, usually at, at the stage you invest in, is that even a factor you recommend companies even? You yeah, you know, know I, I assume he means like, I guess maybe a not as nice of term around it is rent a CFO. Um, and uh, those are super important. No, I think I'm surprised, back to my comment earlier, how long somebody, how long some companies wait to get professional finance help in the company they'll have like a you know a, a bookkeeper kind of just managing very basic things um so i think a even a rent a cfo can kind of up level some of that thinking and maybe even you know accelerate the path for the ceo to think about bringing on a on a cfo but certainly in the absence of uh, a finance lead uh, somebody more professional, more senior than a, than a let's say a bookkeeper uh, is valuable to the company because there's always planning going on. Right? And you want, you want somebody at least like in these outsourced roles, it's hard for somebody to understand deeply the business model or get into the guts of the company, but you want them to be able to describe a process in an output that would be uh, well thought out that the company internally can kind of pursue. And that's what a person like that can help with. Got it. Adam has a good question about how you as a board member like to see the planning process happen, right? So do you think, you know, the sales team and, and go-to-market teams should drive numbers and, and uh, you know, start that way? Or should it be essentially the CFO, CEOs setting the goal and then driving everything that follows behind that? Like, how do you recommend that companies do that? Hmm. Yeah, that that that's a dance, right? Because I think it's a little bit of like, like many things, there's a bit of, tops down and bottoms up. So it's like, uh, hey, look, we want to grow 100% this year. It's like, okay, great. That's a, that's a goal. And then it's like, well, well why? Well, we, we did last year. Okay. Um, what are the kinds of things going on in the business 
that suggest that we can maintain that. Well, I mean, our efficiency is uh, is constant. Um, we're ramping reps, marketing spend is building pipe, you know, go on. We've got these new products coming out, all those kind of things. So, so I think there's that, but then there's always has to be balanced to the bottom up. And that's when you kind of start to meet in the middle around how these things come together. So it's like, okay, well, essentially you're telling me that uh, we have to hire uh, X more people in the next six months. And that's impossible. Uh, just the physics of growing a company, the physics of growing and ramping a sales force make that impossible. So then you're like, okay, so that I get it. I get it. We can only hire at this rate. We can only assume, you know, we're, we're expecting, you know, we have to have Europe or this new product to hit and there's some risk around that. So we'll discount that. And, you know, you just kind of start marching those uh, points together a bit. Got it. This is, this has been fantastic, Matt. And I'm going to uh, wrap up with, uh, a question which is all unrelated to work. I always like to ask people in who are in very busy roles uh, like you, what's fun? Like, oh, you know, what do you do when you're not working? What are you reading, watching, you know, Netflix shows? Yeah. yeah. I love, uh, hear more about that. Okay. Um, so my, my like new favorite thing post COVID has been like, I used to start the day and immediately just kind of get into it because you're driving to the office and you get there. Now, every morning I start off with an hour walk with my dog, maybe take a couple of calls, but I found it's just a fantastic way to kind of clear your head and start the day and in nature and, and, you know, just kind of feel like you're caught up mentally before you're caught up on email and all those other things. So that's a big one. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, um, I think you asked what, you know, watching or whatever, huge, uh, football fans so thrilled at college and uh and pro football are back thursday night game tonight so things like that and uh oh, lots of good series out there if, if in fact maybe offline i'd love to hear some ideas about some new shows that have emerged i'm through peaky blinders and yellowstone and and game of thrones is over so i need something new that really grips me for like two or three seasons yeah no i i definitely have some good suggestions for you there uh okay. And we'll catch up offline about that. But thank you again so much. This has been uh, fantastic. It's always good uh, to get a different perspective. CFOs tell your stories really kind of well. Uh, and that's one perspective. But this perspective of having experienced investors and board members uh, is also a very valuable one. I thank you for taking the time and uh, have a good yeah. rest of the day. Sure. Well, it's a it's a great and uh, invaluable role and field and function and probably more important uh, than ever. So for those who are in the field, you've, you've picked a good one and I wish you the best in your uh, career uh, evolution. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. See you. Bye-bye.